You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, bringing class to trash since All right, everybody, welcome to the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. We are back and ready to talk about movies and keep you entertained on your long commutes or your jogging or your walking or your sleeping, <laughs> whatever, whatever you and however you might listen to us. Uh, I think Will and I joked around one point in time, just, you know, even while you're eating breakfast, dinner, lunch, or who knows what you're doing. We hope Todd and Sammy can keep you smiling and entertained. How's that? Mm-hmm. You know how hard it is to do intros to podcast? You have no idea. Uh, yes. <laughs> you have no idea. Hundreds and hundreds of intros. Um, all right. We are back. We're talking some interesting films this week. We got uh, Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, 1971, directed by Roy Ward Baker. We'll be talking about that. A little Victorian uh, jam. And uh, we'll be talking Wonderland 2003, uh, a non-Victorian jam, uh, <laughs> to say the least. Oh, uh, yeah. And we'll be talking uh, those two movies. Um, yeah, that'll be fun. That'll be interesting anyway. Um, we, uh, yeah, we have some feedback here. <laughs> Sorry. Had a moment where uh, my brain wasn't working. That happened. A little freeze, freeze up there. Yeah, a little freeze, a little, little, little action going on in the brain department. Not good action. The synapses sometimes don't fire like they should. It's like bad spark plugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it happens. It happens. Got to bust out the calipers there, buddy. Yeah, we got some. Speaking uh, of prolapses. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Uh <laughs> We're going to talk about, uh, we got some feedback here. So we got something from Jacob and we got something from Walt. And we're going to play both of those. Well, not at the same time, but one at a time. Again, for the record, we do not listen to these ahead of time. So I have no idea if the sound quality is good. I have no idea if the question is good. And I have no idea if uh, this is a positive or a negative comment. So we're going to find out. And, I, and and not only is the question good, but I have no idea if the question is confounding. <laughs> which could be the case because we have been uh, stumped a little bit before. Sure. Let's see what happens here. 
And uh, Todd, let me know if you can't hear it, please. Okay. They're going to play it now. Hey, guys. This is Jacob. Uh, the question that Walt had given a couple weeks ago. Wow. Um, two films that I could think of that don't fit in a director's filmography but are actually quite good uh, would be A Simple Plan by Sam Raimi. It uh, doesn't really feel like he directed it at all, but it is very good. Uh, and the other one is The House with the Clock in Its Walls by Eli Roth. Um, it is a horror movie, which I, I guess does fit in his filmography. Um, but at the same time, it's completely different from what he normally does. And it's quite good. And then I had a question for you guys. If you could have one picture car from a movie... Uh, to drive around, what would you want? Um, I think I'd want the the vehicle from Mad Max, uh, or actually nice. probably the Road Warrior. It looks cooler. Yeah. All right, bye. All right, did uh, did that uh, do that weird skip thing at the beginning? Yes, it <laughs> so it must that's okay. That's all right. <laughs> that was the remix version of Jacob's uh, <laughs> voicemail. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh okay yeah no those are good choices I haven't seen they are and actually uh, speaking of Sam Raimi I would uh, I would suggest uh the gift uh as well yeah 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 um I think all filmmakers like I said I think all filmmakers and we may have said this when we talked about it from Walt's question um I think they all try to step outside of their comfort zone uh, sometimes I think anybody would uh if you were making films I haven't seen the house with the clock in the walls uh in its walls no. Uh, I've meant to actually, cause some folks have recommended it to me and uh, it's one of those ones where you're always kind of surprised to find out that Eli Roth directed it. So, mm-hmm. um, but again, probably trying to get outside of his comfort zone and open up his, uh, ability to work in the system. It's very important. I mean, if I'm, if I'm in the system, I don't know how singular you can be today, uh, as a filmmaker, there's very few, uh, singular filmmakers anymore. It seems like everybody kind of you know, even, uh, you know, Chloe Zhao, for instance, is doing a Marvel film. I mean, you know, I think filmmakers now think they have to work in the system, so they have to do something. Um, even more so than in the past. But, it's, I mean, it's always been there. It's not like it's not always been there. But I just don't think you're going to see. I don't know if you'll see another, uh, you know, Quentin Tarantino, Robert Rodriguez for a while. I don't know if you'll see those kind of guys. And even Rodriguez, in a lot of ways, he'll work in the system sometimes. Yeah, well, absolutely he will because he's cheap. Yeah, uh, if they allow him to, he'll work in the system. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I think that uh, you know if you're gonna see if you're gonna see another Tarantino, you're gonna see him coming out of the uh, the indie schmindy area. Mm. Uh, and I think that the problem there is that I mean, uh, again, we go to one of my sort of peccadillos. Uh, the that whole, um, well, the way it's presented as the democratization of cinema uh and i've already you know i've expounded on this at length previously so uh, i'll spare everybody listening right now uh but i think that that's kind of where the person where a person like that is going to come from and also why they're going to be buried Mm -hmm. um and remain undiscovered i think by and large um except as maybe i think blips here and there yeah Uh, that's my opinion in in the in the in the absolute as short a way as i can state it right now i think the system itself is going to have to crash somewhat for somebody to kind of come out of that rubble a little bit right now Mm, yeah yeah that's what i think i mean i honestly believe that i honestly believe 
the 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 way the big budget film i mean again big budget filmmaking has always been around tentpole pictures have always been around that's nothing new but i think the way the system is now i think it's going to have to crash before some somebody's going to come out of that rubble well it's gonna it's gonna have to crash until somebody gets the uh widespread attention Mm -hmm. uh that they need in order to become the next tarantino yeah yeah um but yeah, I mean, outside of that, I, I mean, like I said, I mean, they're just going to remain buried. I think in the long run, in the long run. Yeah, that's my opinion. As far as cars, movie cars, I mean, this is easy for me, and this is the answer I always say. But for me, it's the '77 Trans Am from Burst Smoking the Bandit. It's always been that car, and always will be that car. There you go. Uh, I am going to go with the um, the Green Goblin truck from Maximum Overdrive. <laughs> That's a that's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah, right. You can't argue against that one too much. <laughs> still, no, I love that thing back yeah, in the day. Maybe the best thing about that movie, but it's still ah, it's, yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's still an amazing uh, piece of uh, pop art. That, yeah, right. Uh, that truck, love it. Yeah, that's great. Um, it's one of those things that I always forget about until somebody brings it up, and I'm always like, yeah, that thing's amazing. <laughs> there are a lot of great cars in cinema history, though. There are definitely a lot mm-hmm. of great cars. Uh, the White Challenger from Vanishing Point. The uh, there's so there's so many we could just sit here and rattle them off. Obviously the Mustang from Bullet, um, just so many, and it's even the ludicrous cars. Like he mentioned the uh, the cars Mad Max car, yeah. Which I, I I do agree, Jacob. For the record, I think the Road Warrior version of the Mad Max car is better than the first one because it's more ridiculous. It's almost like a superhero version of the same car. Uh, and it has that blower switch when he kicks it's that blower on. the last of the V8 interceptors. Yeah. <laughs> last of the V8 interceptors, mate. Yeah. He's yeah. Got a there. <laughs> All right. Next voicemail from our good friend Walt. Here we go. Thanks, Jacob. Appreciate it. Here we go with Walt. Let's see what we got. Gentlemen, it's Walt. Um, uh, looking at the new Shaw Brothers box set that's coming out. Looks great. Missing one film in particular. A film that I will always champion. I uh, might be the number one evangelist for uh, the Chinese boxer. Fortunately, it's coming out separately yeah. uh, in November. Uh-huh. So I'm excited about that. Now, I have purchased a bunch of Blu-rays here, some 4Ks. <laughs> uh, I got uh, Terminal Island. I got uh, Girl School Screamers. I got uh, Blood for Dracula. Uh, they're just sitting here, you know, uh, unopened. So, uh, you know, <laughs> instead, uh, what do I do while well, I fire up Amazon Prime and, uh, and watch uh, Sharky's Machine? Yeah, there you go. Uh, perhaps I'm being <laughs> converted right. to the uh, school of uh, Henry Silva. And then I had to go to your review from 2018, the whole trio. Uh, that was wonderful. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Yeah, that, uh, that review is fun. The uh, Yeah, so that is modern movie collecting and watching in a nutshell to me yes the whole uh you buy all these things and todd and i actually um and someone else which i won't mention right now had a conversation recently about physical media and stuff and and my general addiction to it uh todd has been addicted to it over the years but (laughs) he's uh come to the conclusion that space is uh is an issue at this point in his life well yeah it's partly space and it's partly that you know i've just you know, if I haven't seen it, then I, I'm really reticent these days to sure. to go dumping twenty or thirty dollars into something that I might watch one time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
and I can understand that. I, I seriously can understand that. Um, but uh, yeah, I was just uh, putting some Blu-rays away into the new homes uh, yesterday, and uh, realizing that wow, I bought this one uh, I don't know eleven years ago. Uh, so there you go. That's uh, <laughs> that is the uh, collector's Classic. conundrum. Yeah, that's the collector's conundrum, right there. I could have watched it any time over the last eleven years, but no, probably fired up Prime or something or Netflix and watched something that even even more bizarre that I probably own on Blu-ray, but it's easier to watch on the digital application, <laughs> mm-hmm. which also happens. Yes, I'm glad you enjoyed that review from back then. We had some fun with the Sharky's Machine review, if I remember. Was I on that? Uh, yeah, the whole trio. He says so. You were there. Oh, there you go. Twenty eighteen. That was three years ago. If you'd have told me that was three years ago, I'd have been like, whatever. But uh, wow, <laughs> where does that time go, man? Where does it go for real? More like three hundred years ago. My God, I just don't. I don't get it. Uh, thanks, Walt. As always, appreciate the uh, the voicemail. Sounds like you hit the vinegar syndrome there with the Terminal Island and the Girl School Screamers. They, uh, you gotta get a little more uh, celic in your life. I think uh, if you go back and listen to the show, I think you'll hear a review of Terminal Island uh, that Will and uh, I believe Andy did, a uh, friend of the show, Andy. Um, but I don't know for sure. I feel like I was supposed to be on it, and uh, didn't quite make that one. But I could be wrong. Uh, check it out. Uh, let's get into what we've been watching. What you been up to? Uh, a couple of things. Uh, Creature with the Blue Hand from 1967 from Alfred Warner. Um, you get uh, Klaus Kinski kind of sort of playing twins uh, in this thing. Um, and the uh, the movie has this, uh, you know, um, well, it has a few actually uh, creepy like, gothic traps. Uh, and uh, the uh, the eponymous weapon, the Blue Hand, um would absolutely 100% fit right in with a, with a Shaw brothers movie. Uh, and I'm especially thinking of, uh, avenging Eagle, uh, in that regard. Um, it also has a very, very, very fetching, uh, Deanna Corner, uh, as the uh, requisite damsel in distress. And, uh, the movie overall actually kind of leans heavily, uh, into the, uh, the cheesecake angle, uh, with all the, uh, all the women in it, uh, Ilsa step at, uh, notwithstanding, um, but the plot itself, uh, of the movie really just kind of meanders along until the movie ends. Uh, and my man, Eddie Arendt is conspicuous by his absence in this one. Um, it's not bad, I don't think, but it is just a whole lot of fluff. Uh, so, you know, take that, uh, for what it is. It's got a whole lot of fluff. Um, there's that, uh, true colors, 1986 directed by one Kirk Wong, uh, and basically this is just a, uh, heroic bloodshed version of Michael Curtiz's, uh, angels with dirty faces. Um, so of course that means that, you know, they took the, uh, the core of the premise and then just kind of threw in a giant wad of, uh, overblown melodrama and dick swinging, uh, and the like, uh, the movie has a, uh, very uncharacteristically, uh, feminine, uh, but still absolutely magnetic, uh, Bridget Lynn, uh, in here, um, and also very, very young, uh, while T Lung, speaking of Avenging Eagle, um, makes a, a valiant effort uh, at uh, playing a slow burn. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think the film ever manages to engage, except in the uh, the violent moments. And uh, I think that uh, Kirk Wong handles the violence uh, about as well as he ever did. 
uh, and you know these uh, these moments kind of really live up to the uh, the label uh, of heroic bloodshed. But I you know I I never cared for the characters uh, with you know the exception of course being Lynn, and then only because she's a, a damsel in distress. Uh, the movie also seems to get really confused by its historical setting because there's. Uh, there's an awful, awful lot of 80s-esque uh, neon and, and uh, colors and, uh, you know, a, a hot lick score that doesn't really line up with its 1960 time frame. Um, so if you, I think that if you have a high tolerance for this sort of movie, you might get something out of this, but I think that uh, the casual viewer most likely will not. Uh, so there's that. Uh, did a rewatch of Blade Runner. Uh, this was the final cut. I busted out the uh, the 4K, finally. Uh, it made its way to the top of the pile uh, and soon to be followed by 2049. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, watching this thing in 4K is really... Uh, it is something to behold because this thing is uh, fantastic looking. And the level of, uh, of detail in this thing is just... It is absolutely fucking astounding. Uh, and I would stack it up against anything uh made today um and especially with the uh you know the the prevalence of uh, cg this blows that stuff out of the water um in just about every in just about every way that you can even though you know I mean, obviously they're still using things like matte paintings and things like that so there are elements that uh, remain sort of uh uh, convivial to each other, I guess you could say. Uh, but yeah, no, I like this movie. Uh, it, it is, it, it is, it does have its share of problems. Uh, it does have its pacing issues. Uh, but it's really just kind of living off of the good graces of, uh, some absolutely fantastic visuals. Uh, and Ridley Scott just kind of digging into, uh, to everything that's going on. And the, the actors all seeming, uh, not seeming all, all being, uh, game, uh, for, uh, for what they're doing. um, because it kind of wants to uh, to be both uh, meditative, but also you know action oriented, and it never quite a hundred percent balances the two out. Uh, I think, um, but it has some uh, it has some fantastic. I mean, it, it, just just to to sit there and stare at this thing without listening to the uh, the dialogue at all, which I did uh, actually because I listened to the uh, the commentary from Ridley Scott uh, this time around, uh, and I still like it a lot. Um, but like I said, I mean, it, it has its share of issues, uh, obviously. Uh, but I, I don't think you would have a lot of, uh, uh, of the stuff that we have today if we didn't have Blade Runner then, um, and Alien even before that. So, you know, give, uh, Scott credit where it's due, uh, in a lot of ways. Um, so moved on from there, uh, to, uh, I needed to go back in time here, uh, to Barcaro, uh, 1970, directed by one Gordon Douglas. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, we reviewed that one as well. Yes, you did. Uh, you know, so from the man who brought us the uh, the superlative, I think them uh, comes a uh, this very postmodern western uh, that I think is uh, about as unconventional as it is of its time. Uh, it's a it's a really gritty small story that manages, I think, to uh, to kind of stealthily tackle uh, sort of uh, the problems faced by the 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 uh, the sort of wilderness tamer. Uh, sort of characters after civilization comes in to, to stand on his shoulders. Um, and I found it interesting that there's there's no purely good uh, and bad guys here. Um, you know, the, the, the two that come closest on either side are uh, the Kerwin Matthews and Forrest Tucker characters, uh, who are also the two wanting the absolute least 
uh, to do with uh, civilized American society. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, Van Cleef especially gets, uh, gets pretty skanky, uh, in the, uh, the second half of this movie, uh, and especially when it comes to the, uh, the Marriott Hartley character. Um, but he also does get to, uh, to beefcake it up. Uh, you know, he gets to oil it, oil up his, uh, his torso and, you know, strut his shit. Uh, and the man was in fucking good shape, uh, for his age. So yeah. give yeah, him, yeah. Uh, give him a lot of credit there. Um, and speaking of, uh, Marie Gomez. Uh, proves to be the absolute definition of pulchritude because, um, man, she's pushing out of things left, right, and center. Um, and, uh, you know, War Notes, uh, you know, gets in here and he uh, he manages to uh, smoke a whole lot of the, uh, the devil's lettuce uh, while he's uh, losing his mind, uh, which I'm, I can only assume uh, that that sort of aspect was... Um, Influenced at least a little bit by the uh, Gian Maria Volante character uh, in For uh, a Few Dollars More. Um, and then, you know, the movie also has one of the uh, the more unusual final duels, uh, I think, this side of, uh, of terror in a Texas town. Um, See so just how the entire thing takes place across a river. Uh, which uh, you know was uh, was pretty interesting. So yeah, no, yeah, I I, yeah. Uh, I thought this one a good bit. It it has an unevenness to it that I think makes it a little more interesting. Yeah, uh, than uh, than a, a traditional, uh, strictly uh, you know American studio western uh, would be. You were going to say something? No, 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 no. I, I I agree with you. I think it's it's uneven and kind of odd. Yeah, well, it's think, really odd. It kind of makes it stand out. Yeah, yeah, and really. No, it's definitely, it, it's definitely is uh, is not like any other western that yeah. I've ever, ever seen. So. And what it comes down to really is just the the idea of Lee Van Cleef versus Warren Oates, right? So, sure, sure, sure. Uh, and that's all that I got, man. So, <clears throat> all right. Sorry, I almost lost my voice there in the the wonderful world of Flem. Mm-hmm. It's a fun, that was a good movie. Fun play. <laughs> it's a it's a fun place to visit, not a fun place to stay. No. Uh, what did I watch? I watched uh, the Suicide Squad 2021. Yeah, uh, check that out. It is definitely James Gunn's Suicide Squad. You can definitely tell. Uh, it's better than the other Suicide Squad, but uh, it's it's still not great. Uh, it was fine. I watched it primarily. I didn't have really have any interest in seeing it, but I watched it primarily because uh, my son was interested to see if he could watch it. And uh, it's a little too crass for him. I'm not interested in showing him that. I don't think he needs to be, uh, you know, DC vertigoed up right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, call me whatever you want to call me for doing that, but I just don't uh, think he's quite ready for the crassness of this film. Um, well, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I think uh, I, I think some of the people in it are interesting. Uh, I think the King Shark character is interesting. Uh, Stallone voices him, uh, and he's, he's kind of fun what they do with him. I think he's done better in the cartoon though. Um, cause there he's both funny and, uh, hom- homicidal <laughs> mm-hmm. here. He's somewhat funny and homicidal. Um, okay. uh, the, uh, I, I liked Idris Elba in the film as Bloodsport. I liked him. And really, I was kind of surprised at how good uh, John Cena was as the Peacemaker, at least as far as that character goes and his interaction. And probably my favorite thing about the movie was his interaction between him and and Elba. That was probably the best thing about the movie. 
uh, for me. Uh, otherwise, it's it's a pretty run of the mill superhero film. Um, I did like the way it kind of ends in a kaiju a kaiju like fashion. That was kind of fun. The ending was good, which is not something I can typically say about these kinds of movies for me. Um, even if it does rely heavily on CGI, uh, it still was entertaining because it kind of, like I said, it took that kind of kaiju like uh, sensibility with it. Um, still don't like the Harley Quinn character. Still never will. Uh, I find her dreadful. And uh, I find her to be almost everything completely wrong with uh, modern superhero stuff. Uh, I just, I, I never like that character. I don't like her in the cartoons. I don't like her. I don't like her, period. <laughs> and I still find it that way. And, uh, you know, I, I think you either, I think a lot of your mileage varies on uh, your likability of her. Do I like Margot Robbie? I sure do. I think she's great. Do I think she's really good as Harley Quinn? Yes, I do. Do I like Harley Quinn the character? No, I do not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, yeah, I've already I've already addressed why I'm not interested in watching this movie. I'm not going to get into it again, uh, but I'm glad that you got a little something out of it. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's better than the other one, but uh, yeah, that's yeah, not yeah. saying much because the. Uh, well, I was going to say that's kind of a low bar. Oh man, that other one, uh, that bar is low. Wow. I mean, nobody can limbo that low. Let's put it that way. <laughs> uh, went from uh, one uh, kind of yeah, middling bar to a very low bar. Uh, Saw 3D. Oh, by the way, I finished Saw 6. Uh, yeah, I finished that off. Good for you. Maybe How did that, that go? Uh, it was awful. Uh, Saw nice. 3D, not much better. Uh, still dreadful and awful. Uh, a little bit better in Saw 6. Uh, about as good as Saw 5. I think I like Saw 1, 2... Five and three D a little bit more than any of them, but none of it never gets better than the first Saw film. Never, not even close. Really, never. And this experiment was really for me, and it's still it's still going on because I still got Jigsaw to watch, which is the origin story, and then I still got uh, Spiral to watch, which is the reboot. Um, but this experiment was basically for me to try to see what I. As much as I'm a film fan, I'm a a fan of culture in general. I, I I like to see why why do books become huge hits? Why do films you know why 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 do these things? Why do we culturally appropriate these things and and they become a big part of our of what we are for a while? And the Saw films are interesting to me because I've never been able to quite figure out on the surface why they became what they became. And watching through this series, I'm really confused as to why they became what they became outside of the mechanics of the traps. Mm -hmm. I think the only reason why these films garner any attention is because of the ludicrousness of the planning that has to be in place and how everything has to be absolutely freaking perfect. <laughs> for well, and, and I, I, that could absolutely be the case in this how, I mean, you know, there's a reason why people are fascinated by, you know, shows like how it was, how was this made and, yes. you know, yes. and, uh, the Rube Goldberg, uh, yes. contraptions to begin with. Right. And that's what it really comes down to. And that's my only uh, culturally relevant thing I can think of that would make sense. And obviously there's the, the caveat of mixing that with extreme violence, which, you know, obviously, as a culture, we have always been kind of fascinated by extreme violence in some way, shape, or form. So, uh, especially American culture. So, I, I think that you know, you take those two things, and then you get a you know, you get ten years of or almost twenty years of these Saw films, uh, 
and uh, you can kind of see. And obviously, they make a lot of money because they don't cost much money to make. Uh, you don't have to put a big star in there because you the star of the movie is the contraptions. So, I, I guess I can understand why it was uh, the cultural kind of phenomenon it was. But at the same time, I think to myself, even watching this, how much time I've wasted uh, <laughs> watching these movies that are just dreadful. I mean, they're they're dreadful. I mean, I just I can't. <clears throat> excuse me, I can't think of a horror series off the top of my head that is pound for pound worse than this one. That's saying something. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I mean, I can I can make arguments for Halloween, Friday Thirteenth, Phantasm, you name it. But this one, mm, no, not for me. But again, I'm not done. <laughs> so maybe it'll uh, save itself. Highly doubtful. Uh-huh. For those who enjoy it, hey, I don't judge. I mean, you, you like what you like. Um, but for me, I, I find these films, uh, they're just dreadful. They really are. And not because of the content. Look, I can get behind ultraviolence as much as anybody. Uh, I like a lot of ultraviolent movies. Um, but mm, these aren't transgressive. They're uh, degressive. <laughs> In my opinion, they 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 evolve backwards. They what is the word devolve? Yeah, there we go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they or de-evolve. regressive. Yeah, they're it's uh, yeah, they are the ingrown hair of the horror. Ooh. <laughs> of the, of oh, the, buddy. Of the horror set. <laughs> Gonna go have to go heat up a needle <laughs> to dig that fucker out. Yeah, they're brutal. Um, and then uh, watched a couple films with my daughter. Watched uh, she wanted to check out Paw Patrol the movie. It's exactly what you think it is. Uh, it wasn't bad. Uh, it's a kid's movie through and through. Um, uh, you know, we had a good time with it. It was fine. And a uh, SpongeBob movie, Sponge on the Run. And this one, Sponge loses, uh, SpongeBob loses his pet snail, Gary, which is a great name for a pet snail. And uh, it also has that, you know, there's always been something about SpongeBob that borders on adult humor in a strange uh, way. Uh, that gets through. And in this one, it opens with Gary going across SpongeBob's face and him saying, oh, snail trail. <laughs> and uh, immediately my demented brain goes somewhere else. Uh, yes, it does. Uh, and then he licks it. So, you know, there's... Ooh. So SpongeBob has always been uh, an acquired taste for some. He's, very, he's a very loud character. Uh, I have to say, as I've gotten older, I've come to appreciate... The sort of, I know I say this word a lot, but the sort of transgressive nature nature of the SpongeBob character. It is a very, when you go back and look at that cartoon, it's a very transgressive cartoon. <laughs> and it really pushes boundaries. Um, in, a, in a kid's cartoon, it really pushes boundaries. So much so that my wife is not happy that my daughter is taken to SpongeBob. <laughs> but to me, I'm like, hey, you know, you got to do what you got to do. You know, it's 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 borderline offensive, and it's okay for that to be okay. Um, but it's, and to my opinion, it's not crass. It's like not, it's not ill thought. It's just offensive to be funny. So it's kind of like George yeah. Carlin. It's kind of genius in its offensiveness. All right, that's all we've watched. I did watch the nine eleven one day in America documentary on Hulu, and uh, if you are sensitive. Uh, and would like to avoid things like depression, I would recommend not watching that. 
Um, if you're like me, though, and like to live in the doldrums of life, uh, it's quite amazing. Um, but it is, uh, it is a sad, sad, sad watch. Um, and not for everybody. So sad and so upsetting that uh, one night I couldn't even sleep after watching it. So it, it really rattled me that hard. Good Lord. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty hardcore. It does everything but show you the after effects, but the way people describe things, of course, somehow, you know, in the news media, they manage to avoid most things other than people falling out of buildings. Mm-hmm. But um, what you don't, you know, I mean, if a plane hits a building, there's a bunch of bodies on there, so those body parts got to go somewhere. Um, there's one scene in the thing where the guy comes up, talks about coming out of the building, and he said everywhere he looked, there was nothing but body parts everywhere. Ugh. And I'm like, I don't know how they avoided getting that on camera, but then they kind of say that the body parts were so small because of obviously the the point of impact and the incineration uh, that it just uh, is insane. And the other thing that I found out, well, I guess I knew that when the plane hit that there was so much fuel on it that it went right down the elevator shaft and blew everything out. And that's just kind of insane to me. But it's, uh, it's a crazy, scary... Uh, wonderfully beautiful in a weird way uh documentary that's in six parts i would log it as a film but it's 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 i don't know it's it's not for everybody um when i say this on this show i don't want anybody if you again if you are sensitive or if you just don't feel like you're in that place in your life uh do not watch this (laughs) uh again if you're dark like me (laughs) who lives on the dark side of everything <laughs> then uh yeah you'll be fine you'll probably uh, be riveted like i was all right uh we're gonna take a short break come back and discuss uh dr jekyll and sister hyde mm-hmm. we'll be back right after this I remember the video for that. I mean, they really gave that song a push. 
kind of horror movie elements to the video. And that's the the odd thing about the song too is it kind of starts out as this kind of uh, sounds like this kind of wasteland type wind effect, and then all of a sudden it gets into this <laughs> almost folk like uh, happy go lucky song. It's very strange. Anyway, uh, don't know why I thought of it. I guess I did because of the movie we're talking about. Uh, I'd forgotten it even existed until literally five minutes ago or ten minutes ago, maybe. <laughs> uh, Doctor Jekyll and Sister Hyde. Uh, this is rated PG. Which is interesting. Um, directed by Roy Ward Baker. Uh, obviously, the original story is from Robert Louis Stevenson. Probably one of the most influential stories of all time, arguably. Uh, this screenplay is done by Brian Clemens. Stars Ralph Bates, Martin Brestwick. Or Martine Brestwick. Sorry, Bestwick, not Brestwick. I think I'm uh, a Freudian slip there, maybe, Todd. Wow. That was... Uh, uh, <laughs> Gerald Sims in here as well. Considerable. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 1971, a Victorian scientist tests a serum that transforms him into a sensuous murderess. So this one takes a slightly different angle on the uh, the mythos. Um, I'll lead on this. Todd uh, selected this film. I was kind of happy he did because uh, obviously I'm a big fan of these type of stories. Uh, they're you know very werewolfian, very like lycanthropic, lycanthropic in nature. But uh, I really enjoy that. Uh, I'm a big fan of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the story, uh, because of the duality of man. Yes. And uh, that goes for Woolman as well. Whoa, man. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking Mike Myers and uh, So I Married so an Expert. Yeah. Whoa, man. <laughs> anyway, uh, sorry. Um, the uh, This one takes an interesting angle in that I, I, it's almost transgressive in nature uh, in the way that it decides to take the mythos and make the Hyde character a female. Um, and that is not something that I believe was done up until this point. Uh, I think the last that I could think of. Yeah, I think the last, at least the last uh, Jekyll and Hyde story I can remember may have been Mary Riley. Uh, the Julia Roberts film, Julia Roberts. Uh, well, I'm sure there's been something else. The mummy with Tom Cruise. Uh, yeah, technically. Yeah, he did. That's right. I think they were going to do more with that, but, uh, yes. but thankfully not. They, they did not. Um, I think that, uh, you know, this isn't the first one to mix the Jack the Ripper mythos into here. The, the kind of Jack the Ripper story. Right, but that's one of the more interesting things going on here. Yeah, because I think the Mary uh, Riley film does that, and so does the, if I remember, I think the Frederick March, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde mixes the Ripper stuff in there a little bit. That I don't recall. I've only seen that one one time, and that was a long time ago. Yeah. So I don't I don't know 100%. But that, I mean, that, it, it, it does make sense, you know, when you, you kind of tie the two together, because one of the prevailing theories of that crime has always been that a doctor committed it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And whether it was the uh, the royal doctor or not, and why I'll leave to the detectives. Yes. Um, but I think that it's interesting because you know that the 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 opening of the film sets the stage uh, in that regard, not only you know for the narrative, um, but the I think the themes, uh, and especially you know when with tying these two things together, because you know um, we have uh, we have Jack the Ripper, the, well the, the Jack the Ripper persona. Uh, disemboweling a hooker, uh, while you know Roy Ward Baker, he goes ahead and he, he cuts between that and a butcher disemboweling a rabbit. Right. 
Uh, and I think that that's really interesting because, you know, in that way, then, uh, you know, animals and women uh, are just kind of meat to be used and taken. And, you know, the, the, um, and the Susan uh, character uh, you know, later on will be struggled over, I think, by, by Jekyll uh, as to whether, you know, he wants to use her or be with her. And I found that kind of interesting as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, the whole movie then kind of plays off this, this, uh, this dynamic. Uh, and I think that's why I kind of gravitate towards this movie um, in the first place, because on its surface, you just kind of look at it and you're like, huh? Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. then once you actually get into the movie, it really does pay off. And it pays off, uh, I think, in a, a multitude of uh, ways in uh, in various layers, uh, I think, that are going on here. So. Yeah. Oh, I think that's the best thing about the movie. I think that it's it's messing with our conception of the the male psyche. Yeah. By mixing oh, yeah. in the female yeah. quotient to this to this story, and I, I again I am surprised it's rated PG. Uh, not well, I mean not surprised for 1971, maybe more surprised for 2021. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, you know we know now that you know if you have uh, nude breast or if you have violence toward women or violence toward anything, really, it's probably going to get a rated R. Well, maybe not. I mean, there are some pretty ultra-violent, in my opinion, movies that are PG-13. Well, all the Marvel movies, some of which have some pretty good instances of violence. Oh, yeah. Uh, They're all PG-13. I think of the Mission Impossible movies. I mean, there's uh, about a million gunshots in those, and they're all PG-13. Yeah. Um, but well, that's always know. been the thing, though. About that's always been the the, the criticism of uh, the American uh, yeah. society or, sure. or cinematic uh, society. I guess you yeah. know we're we're more than happy to to show as much violence as uh, oh yeah as we could possibly cram in there, but show a nipple and you know yeah everybody that's right. loses their shit. Yeah, shoot a kid. Okay, show a nipple. Whoa, settle down. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, you know we got to watch it. Those nipples are dangerous. Oh yeah. That's well, what, what it can I, be. That's what I said about Todd when I first met him. Um, so the, uh, cutting glass, glass, that's right. Just like like those perfect circles that they cut with the suction cups. (laughs) (laughs) The, uh, the, the element of casting here, Roy, uh, not Roy Ward Baker, Ralph Bates, Mm. who uh, died young, by the way. Yes, he did. Unfortunately. Pancreatic cancer, if I recall. Um, good looking man. Uh, the idea, though, of casting Martine Breswick here, and I said Breswick that time. I didn't say Breswick. It might have sounded like that. <laughs> I'm try Wait, to, is this? Are we going with the the Wynorski, I'm gonna, uh, the Jim Wynorski, which is of uh, Breswick? I'm going to try uh, to. Here? I'm going to try to go around that as much as I can. Am I? Ooh, I see slip? what you did there with yeah. the nipple metaphor. Oh, there we go. I'm going to try to to approach this on the areola side of the. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, um, tiptoe through the two lips. She is uh, she is gorgeous, Martine yes. Beswick, in my opinion. She is she uh, she was in uh, some Bond films and uh, a few other things. She never really kind of really got past the uh, kind of femme fatale or the hot lady in uh, you yeah. know for lack of a better term in films. No, but she really she really shows it here. I mean, because I think that you know she she does. Um, she does a really nice job being both mysterious and really she has this primal. Mm-hmm. Uh, quality to her, yeah, animalistic. She, you yeah. really see on screen here. Yeah, she does a very good job of that. Uh, there's this sexuality to her that is uh, seething. Yes, and yeah. it's, it's Actually, really nice. That's why that's why she works so well off of Bates because Bates is a guy, you know, uh, you know his uh, his great late sixties Dutch boy haircut, you know, yeah. notwithstanding. Um, he does this. He's very straight laced. He's very stiff. 
Oh, yeah. uh, as yeah. as befits the the character as it's always kind of been portrayed. Yeah. Uh, but she uh, is the exact opposite of that because she is just all, yeah, like you said, seething. Yeah, uh, seething is, is probably the best word that you I can mean. Come up she with. has a great entrance in this film. She pops up, yeah. and you're like, okay, cool. This is what we're gonna go with. And the uh, the guy the guy that lives upstairs, the brother of the female character that's kind of fascinated by uh, Doctor Jekyll. He comes downstairs and he sees her and she's exposed her breast. And it's this very, it's very sexually aggressive without being very aggressive at all. But it's a, it's a great moment, but it plays even harder or even more riveting because it's set in Victorian times when yes, uh, people were meant to hide their bodies. Yes. Uh, and I think originally, from what I understand, Roy Ward Baker wanted uh, to do a full nude scene here. Uh, but uh, the the producers and everybody else decided that they didn't want to do it, and I don't think uh, well, but I think, I think it, it actually plays a little bit better like this. Because yeah, it does know, because he's just seeing enough to be riveted. The peak, yeah, the peak is, an, yeah. is more than enough to yeah. to titillate. Yeah, because I mean, you know, that's that's the whole point of breast anyway. As men, we are sometimes fascinated with breast because we don't have them, we see them, and we're like, oh, we're seeing something we're not supposed to see, and you know, it's almost like this. To me, they've always been like this, you know, it's almost like the Venus flytrap part of the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm saying that on the air right now. They've always kind of sucked me in. <laughs> um, So, you know, but I believe also that the producers are like, well, look, you can show her nude. You can show her rear end. You can show her breasts, but you cannot show her pubic hair, obviously, because then we this is a different movie. Right. So that's that's interesting. And I know from what I have read that Martine Beswick was not really excited about doing this um thinking it would hurt her career i don't think it hurt her career but again her career never really kind of captured any more than i mean this might be the apex sadly of her career yes yeah 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 well this and or well or one million bc uh which she and uh raquel welch kind of yeah, and I, she, as far as I know, and the reason why I bring all this up, as far as I know, she blames a lot of her career path on this movie. Oh, really? Like, okay. she she never really kind of recovered, in her opinion, from this this uh, this movie. Uh, really? Yeah, I mean, I don't agree with her, but obviously... No, I don't uh, either. I mean, you know, that's her perception of her career. And, uh, you know, Hammer was pretty on top of things at this point in time. And we should mention this is a hammer film, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, and they were doing quite well. They really were. Um, and you can see some money here. You can, I mean, this film looks very good. Uh, it really does. It's all shot on sets and, and very enclosed, but at the same time, it still looks really nice. Um, and I don't know why she would think that this, this hurt her in that way. But again, it just, you know, everybody's career path is different. Uh, some people can do nudity in a film and they'll have the greatest career in the world, male or female. And some people will do nudity in a film and everything they choose after that is probably really the reason why they've fallen behind. But some people, for whatever reason, they will think that they, they did that one movie that completely changed things and I, you know, whatever. I mean, she was okay. I mean, I liked her in Thunderball. She's in a good film called John the Bastard, which is really good. 
she was in uh, Prehistoric Women, Bullet for the General, which is a great spaghetti western. I mean, I think she did some good stuff. She was in The Seizure and a lot of TV when I was growing up. She was in The Six Million Dollar Man. I remember her in that because uh, she was striking. She's a uh, Jamaican yeah, yeah. Uh, by heritage. But she's also in Jamaican me crazy. Yeah, Jamaican me wild. She's still <laughs> she's still working to this day. She actually just she kind of she kind of always reminded me of Barbara Steele. Yeah, a little bit uh, in a lot of ways. She, she had that same sort of striking look to her. Yeah, just didn't have the eyes quite as much, but definitely the striking right. jawline right. and and look. Yes. Uh, she just narrated a film recently this year called Cowgirls versus Pterodactyls. So, you know, I got news for her. You know, sometimes. That can be where you know your movie career goes sideways. Maybe I mean she did do tra- uh, uh, tra- uh, Transfers Two. Uh, she did Wild Sargasso Sea, which is uh you know she was in that, which is an NC Seventeen film. Uh, you know she did some she did some stuff that uh, was off the beaten path. She's in Miami Blues a little bit. I mean she's she's been around for a while and uh, she's had a career. Uh, maybe not the career she wanted. But to blame it on the nudity of this film, I think it's kind of ludicrous and kind of silly, to be honest with you. I would 100% agree with that. Because um, I think yeah, the choices that you make are the choices that you make, and what you're given is uh, is yeah. partly a result of what you're, what's seen of you and then what's yeah. what uh, what what level you rise up to as well, and to be perfectly honest. And it's tasteful here. I mean, let's be honest. The yeah. nudity here is very tasteful. It seems the nudity here also is very practical. It seems like the moments that she has especially with her breast itself it seems like that's what if a man changed into a woman it seems like within the realm of a pg film let's say we would be like hey what are these <laughs> yeah no that totally fits yeah it totally it does not feel gratuitous it does at not all. it doesn't it doesn't and it's actually quite a hot scene uh um, yeah i like all the stuff in the london fog here uh the way the movie moves around I like the the kind of banter between the Ralph Bates character and the uh, I think his name is Gerald Sim character, who I've seen in other stuff, but I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, the interaction between them is nice, and the interaction between his upstairs neighbor and Doctor Jekyll is also nice. Um, he's a bit of a well, he's a character as we know from Jekyll. He's a character obsessed with his work, uh, not unlike Doctor Frankenstein himself. Uh, they're these characters that have a very singular purpose uh, in life, and they really don't see anything else except these singular purposes. Now, they, they managed to work in the Burke and Hare thing here a little yeah, bit as well, yeah, yeah. which is also a nice touch. They really kind of go for it. I feel like Hammer was making a Jekyll film, and they're like, you know what, let's just throw in a lot of our uh, kind of mythos and CD past in here. Let's throw in Jack the Ripper, Burke and Hare. We got Jekyll and Hyde. You know, they mix it all in here. And uh, I think they do it well. I think it's a really nice mixture of all those things. There's, there's not well, too I, much Birkin hair, which I'm happy about. And there's not too much No, but they also pay off, number yeah. one. Number two, Number two. it also, this you know, throwing in Birkin hair is the same thing as throwing in Jack the Ripper because I think it ties in thematically to the, the movie because, you know, uh, you know, obviously, and especially at this point in time, uh, you know, women are very much objects. Um, like, uh, you get the, the, the old, uh, Dr. Robertson character, I think, uh, you know, he's staring at, 
at uh, the the Spencer character, uh, there's the guy in the morgue uh, saying that he's fond of one of the corpses. I mean, this is all just bodies. Uh, very, very young. I, he likes yeah. them young, as a matter of fact. He likes them young, yeah. <laughs> and so and so and that and so when you know that when they throw in the uh, the you know Birkin hair, they're as odious here as they ever were in other you know idioms. Yes. Uh, so you know the women in the film, aside from Hyde. I think are either complete virgins or complete whores. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think that this, along with the, you know, that ubiquitous London fog, uh, pretty much sums up just about every cinematic depiction of London at the time forever. Yeah. Uh, but I think that that's all, that's what this whole movie is, is centered on. And I think that's why it makes sense to have Burke and Heron here. Sure. Uh, because you know, they dealt in meat. Yeah. Uh, same way that, uh, that all of these guys are staring at women, uh, like their dinner ready to be carved up in one way or another, either, you know, uh, uh literally or figuratively. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a large portion of what the movie is. Well, I don't, I don't doubt it either. I mean, I mean, there's a reason why they cut to the butcher scene. I mean, it's sure this movie is, you know, looking, well, it, it kind of gets into that in a way, the Jekyll mythos to me has always been about, and the same thing with the Frankenstein thing and Mary Shelley's book and in Robert Louis Stevenson's book and even Poe, some of his original stuff. I mean, one of the reasons why I think we like horror so much is because we're all kind of fascinated by our own mortality. Sure. Uh, we know we're not going to be here forever. And you either are fascinated by the fact that you're going to go at some point in time or at least curious about how you might go uh, at some point in time. I think that's a natural human trait. I don't think there's anybody that doesn't think about that at some point in time. I think there's lots of us who think about it less than others or more than others. But I think fascin the fascination with horror has always been our own mortality and the safety we feel reading about other people's tragedies or the kind of titillation maybe of reading about, you know, murder or watching true crime documentaries or any of these things. I think we get uh, some type of satisfaction from the safety that we feel watching or reading these things, right? And it's always been there. It's been there since the beginning of time. I, I laugh when people say, oh, I can't believe people watch this true crime stuff. And I'm like, what? It's It's been around since the beginning of time. Yes. This uh, Jack the Ripper thing is a great example. It's been around since we've always Cain been. And Abel. Yeah, we've always been fascinated by the decisions people make or the lack of good decisions people make. We've always been fascinated by that. We always will be because that's that's human beings. That's the duality of, of mankind. It's, you know, there's for all of us that will walk up on you and give you a hug and tell you how great you look and, and tell you the world's a fantastic place full of sunshine and flowers and and bees uh, and all these kind of wonderful things. There's the person that will walk up on you and it's the last person you'll ever see. Yeah. And... That's hard for people to swallow sometimes, but that is the reality of our existence. We are what we are. And I think that that's why Stevenson's story and horror stories in general have persevered all these years because we know underneath the surface of everything that, you know, a different background and me and you could have turned out to be different people. Um, maybe a couple other decisions and me and you could end up being different people. Uh, you know, it's it's not that far-fetched to think you couldn't be one of these people or one of these scary, terrible things. And well, I honestly... say that I'm not, or you're not. Yeah, and, and to me, I, I do believe I have a duality. There's a part of me that's very aggressive and very angry that I put on the back burner, that I keep behind the scenes a lot. 
it probably comes through in my creative ventures and certainly comes through in the stuff I watch, the stuff I read, and uh, my general disdain for most things created by human beings. But at the same time, I'm able to turn that off and function. Uh, so, you know, I, some people can do that. Some people cannot. And you could argue that that's a very Jekyll and Hyde existence. Uh, you know, in the privacy of my own home, I like the dark things. I like uh, to read about, uh, you know, things that are dreadful. I have, I don't know, hundreds of books around here about serial killers and all kinds of things. But in my public life, obviously, uh, I don't walk around and talk about Albert Fish to the first person I see on the side of the road. <laughs> yeah, nor do I think you should uh, necessarily. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, that's yeah, but that's 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 part of every human being is public private I yes mean, yes obviously we compartmentalize and some of us do it in a healthy way and some of us unfortunately do it in a very unhealthy way and that's again comes down to that jekyll and hyde thing so i think all that stuff's very interesting but i think what the angle that uh, roy ward baker and brian clemens take here is by throwing it into the female arena mm -hmm. it makes it that much more twisted in a way because at the time yes. we're talking 1971 so we're talking 50 years ago at the time that's a very progressive slash transgressive way to look at this because yes. 71, we're still thinking only men, especially white men, uh, can be this seething sexual monster. Mm -hmm. uh, what we've come to discover is it's in all of us, uh, obviously, uh, yeah. which was always there. But in 1971, people are still kind of obsessed with the you know, the tower shooting, uh, the, yep, you know, yep. the Jack, the rippers, you know, Albert fish, things like this. And that's understandable the angle they take, but I really think it's genius. And actually Jose, a good friend of the show, Jose, he reached out to me and said, he'd always meant to see this and never did. And he wondered if it was any good. And I would say, yes, this movie is very good. I agree. Uh, it is very stagey. I will say that. Well, it is as every Hammer movie tends yeah, to be. It is but, that. And it's very costume drama. You got to be yes. ready for that aspect. But yes, yes, yes. I will say this. When it goes outside of the flat, and we'll call it a flat because we're talking about a British film here. Exactly. When, it, when he steps outside of the flat, it is alive. These small sets are alive with this, what we perceived Whitechapel to be like at the time. Indeed. And I really enjoyed those trips through the fog. And I think they're handled quite well. I uh, think they are. Absolutely. Uh, they're suspenseful. They're mm -hmm. just violent enough to be riveting. And uh, they're very sexy in nature. There's a lot of yeah. sexuality on display here without being overly uh, reliant upon nudity. And I know we mentioned nudity here. But it's not about the nudity here. It's about the the eroticism it's about the desire it, that's what it's about here and it's very well handled by roy ward baker and brian clemens here and hammer in general and i would say this is one of if not possibly out of all of hammer's films this might be one of the 10 best uh i absolutely think it's in the uh in the top 10 uh, uh for hammers yeah for hammer stuff because i mean there's a lot of hammer stuff that's hit or miss right and sure we've talked about it because both you and i grew up watching a lot of that stuff but this one this one i think honestly i'm glad you picked it because i think it gets overlooked first mm -hmm. of all in their reputation but second of all as a take on jekyll and hyde to begin with it totally yes. gets overlooked 
So I highly recommend this one. I'll kick it over to you. Okay. Uh, so a couple things here just to add in. Um, so I found it interesting that, uh, you know, Jekyll's looking for uh, an elixir of youth and he compares it to women uh, because he's experimenting with female hormones. And it's kind of ironic then um, that Jekyll talks uh, very explicitly about women keeping their beauty uh, as they age when I found it uh, kind of funny. You know, the, the film industry uh, is notorious uh, for tossing <laughs> yeah. women away basically after they hit puberty. Um, yeah, but you know, this is also the, 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 the same sort of, uh, fanciful thinking, uh, that sometimes passed for science in the same way that, you know, films sometimes throw out there that, uh, stuff like, uh, the last thing that a dying person sees imprints itself on, you know, yeah. their eyeballs. And you all have to wonder sort of too, I don't know if you experienced this growing up, but I remember, you know, we're the same age. So I always have to ask this question. I, I talked to Troy about this over, not a bomb quite a bit as well, because he's the same age as us. I don't know if our generation, I don't know if you recall hearing any conversations from adult males as a kid, but I would always hear that, that women age better than men. I've uh, never heard that. I've heard, I've heard, uh, I've heard, um, men will tend to grow, uh, grow old more gracefully, more sophisticated. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah. When, when a guy gets old, it's, uh, it's sophisticated when a woman gets old and you know, yeah. No, uh, it's it's like the the old the, the old saying that the only two things that get uh, that get more uh, dignified with age are uh, politicians and hookers, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And one and one of those begets the other, uh, right? Exactly. <laughs> which is interesting. The uh, I, no, I, I I just remember I would have these conversations, or I would be in on these conversations, right? I'd be around these older men. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, you know, we were of a generation where men would actually talk like men around young boys. <laughs> Mm-hmm. They don't do that really now, but uh, I would hear men say, "Oh yeah, man, she's aged like fine wine and things like oh, that." Yeah, yeah, well, I think that yeah, part of that is because you know, and 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 this goes back to you know, I, I think of my my myself in this regard uh, when I talk about uh, yeah, the you are you Rachel are Ticketin. you are fine wine. I know, right? <laughs> uh, when I talk about <laughs> Rachel Ticketin, uh, because I just saw her and uh, I was watching parts of uh, Man on Fire. Uh, oh, yeah. and you know, seeing her in, in there and I'm just like, Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, the woman well, that, you know, she, she's only gotten better with age. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that it, part of that is because, you know, because the piggish nature of men, yes. uh, yes. is just that, you know, we are impressed, uh, when a woman doesn't fall to shit, uh, after a certain age. That is certainly there. Uh, Whether we want to admit it or not, that is always kind of there. That's a hundred percent there. I mean, yeah. this is you know this is what it is because guys you know guys like to stick their dicks in things. So yeah. you know, yeah. uh, as as we get older, then we have to we have to have something to compare it to because you know, listen, eighteen year old chippies ain't gonna be into fifty year old guys too too much as far as I'm aware. <laughs> uh, so you know, when we have to uh, to aim at our at age appropriate uh, companions, um, then yeah, we're gonna we're gonna you know, put them into these terms. Uh, I think that, uh, that that's where that kind of thing comes from is that, that that's my opinion on it. That's my take on it. Um, and I'm certainly not, I, I yeah, I'm not, uh, I'm not denying that I've, uh, that I've done that sort of thing, certainly, but I've, uh, I've, I, generally speaking, uh, I've, I've only really ever heard of, uh, of it being, you know, like, like men get the kind of the pass on it mm. where women is the exception to the rule. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, I certainly agree with you with Hollywood standards. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, they just, you know, once a woman reaches 35 in Hollywood, she may as well be 
Yeah, yeah. She yeah, may as well yeah. be one of the three witches well, in Macbeth. And, and even and even getting back to you know, um, look at uh, uh, porn, right? Oh yeah. Uh, after a certain after like uh, after like twenty four or something, then they uh, they I think they pretty much are consigned to playing uh, uh, mothers at that point. Yeah, it's bizarre. Getting back to the uh, the toys are uh, are not for children discussion from uh, last week. Um, if you would like. Uh, so there's that. Um, so yeah, I mean, you, you kind of touched on this as well, uh, about, uh, you know, what the movie was doing as far as, uh, you know, making the, 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 the villain a woman. And I found that very interesting, uh, that, uh, what they're basically getting at is that man's inner self is both female and evil, uh, which, you know, rather interestingly, Jekyll, uh, is, is also evil, but Hyde is the, uh, um, Let's say he's kind of like, or she's uh, kind of like the uh, the superhero alter ego that allows Jekyll to indulge his id uh, much more freely. Uh, as this story has always kind of uh, been uh, about to, to a large degree to begin with. Uh, and then the flip side of that, um, if you want to get like really really thematic, is that um, the Hyde character is then kind of the uh, uh, the embodiment of, of vengeance that's suffered by women in general at the at the whims of men, um, because you know she uses her looks to lure people, men and women, uh, into her uh, her trap. And then the flip flip side uh, then is that you know uh, Hyde is also embodying um, an element of self loathing, uh, whether of men or women or both. I mean, you could really debate, uh, which then gets into this whole idea uh, about homosexuality that comes up in the movie because Jekyll is, um, according to uh, the Susan character's brother, he's quote unquote impervious to women. And of course, you know, Jekyll, uh, like all mad scientists, is obsessed to the point of distraction. But, you know, every other man in this movie is a skirt chaser. Oh, yeah. Uh, almost first and foremost. Yeah. Uh, and it's interesting then that, you know, at least at first, uh, Hyde provides a beard uh, for the Jekyll character, but I think that it's also pretty undeniable as the film goes along. Just you know what it's getting at with this, and especially once Hyde um, starts to overtly uh, seduce men, and you know this bleeds over into into Jekyll's behavior. Mm. Uh, you know because the woman becomes the dominant personality, and again, uh, you can point to the the element of self loathing that uh, that I mentioned. Um, where here it's in regards to Jekyll and Hyde's uh, sexuality rather than uh, strictly gender. Uh, and the film, I, I don't think the film is afraid at all to, uh, to really play up the gay panic angle. Uh, and this is, you know, what I enjoy, this use of metaphors uh, and suggestions in this way, subtle or unsubtle. Yeah. Um, and I find it really fascinating, uh, you know, uh, for, uh, for what the film is, uh, is getting at. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also interesting in this way, uh, that the film is pretty smart with what it's doing along with, uh, you know, a little bit more of the, uh, the salacious aspects of it. Uh, because yeah, I mean, <clears throat> the movie does take time to show uh Beswick caress in her, her, uh, breasts. Uh, and you know, it's certainly not shy about that, but at the same time, it's very tasteful. Uh, just like it's not shy about showing some blood and some meat cutting. Mm -hmm. Um, so it kind of, uh, it really does a nice job of, uh, skirting the line. um, I think that, uh, you know, Roy Ward Baker does a very nice job with the, with the direction here. Uh, there's nothing outstanding per se from like a style perspective. Uh, but it's all in all around. I mean, like you said, it's very, very stagey and it is, uh, because, uh, you know, of its nature it has to be, yeah. uh, in a lot of ways. And, you know, I think that 
Baker does make a good use of the mirror metaphor. Uh, and the initial transformation scene is actually pretty damn slick. Uh, if you sit there and watch it, cause it's all one shot. Um, I mean, some of the, some of the man hands <laughs> moments are a little bit ridiculous, yeah. <laughs> but that's also part and parcel, uh, with the, uh, the story. So, I mean, it kind of, it just kind of is one of those things. Uh, you know, likewise, I feel that, uh, the, the Brian Clemens, uh, screenplay is, is, you know, it could be blunt, uh, in spots, but I also think that it moves along at a pretty brisk pace, all things being equal. Uh, and I, you know, this movie never loses my interest. Uh, I do think that it could have, you know, done a bit more from like a plot angle. Mm. Um, but still in all, I mean, you know, this movie is, is rock solid, uh, down to its core. I mean, as, as late cycle hammer horror goes, uh, I think this one, you know, kind of gets lost in the shuffle unjustly, uh, like we kind of talked about. And maybe because uh, that might be because, you know, its premise is so outrageous and very easily, uh, risible, um, but I personally enjoy the film a great deal and I would absolutely recommend it not only to, uh, our, our buddy Jose, but to uh, just about anybody, yeah. uh, who's, uh, who's interested in, uh, in this sort of thing. Right. Um, uh, and that's pretty much all that I got. Uh, yeah. so, but I mean, there, there really is a lot to dig into with this movie and that's kind of what I enjoy about it because it does make it, uh, really rewatchable. Um, and like I said, I mean, it, it is very nicely paced. So that as well, uh, lends itself to that, uh, that aspect of it. So, right. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree with you on everything you say. Also, let me get this out of the way. Okay. At, at what point is that chin strap ever on a police hat in this day and age? Is that <laughs> where the chin strap is supposed to go? Or is that just where it's always, uh, you know, I don't, I've never understood it. Why I've is, never gotten that one myself. Uh, seems like it, it should go looks, under the chin and not on the lip. <laughs> yeah, right. It just, it looks really like impractical in that way. Yeah. Seems like that would lead to chapping or chafing. Well, not only that, but I mean, yeah, it's not going to keep the fucking thing on you <laughs> if you have to, you know, bend over to tie your shoe or something. That fucker's coming off. Yeah, maybe uh, somebody can explain that to us, somebody who knows something about the London Bobby, the type of hat. And maybe maybe <laughs> well, there's it's the some... same thing. That, it's the same thing that like the uh, the Royal Guard. Yeah. Uh, maybe there's some kind of history to that hat, though. You know, maybe that we don't know. And I didn't Google it or look it up or anything, but uh, it seems to be. To me, to see to be impractical. <laughs> yes, I 100 percent agree with you on that. Uh, okay, uh, make or break for me is that first transfer scene. It's both erotic, uh, surprising. Even though you do know the title of this film, I still think the way they handle it is very well done. And um, I, I think the way it plays out is very well done, uh, and it sets up the rest of the movie. And that's what you need from that kind of transformation. You need it to set up the rest of the movie. So and that's what it does. Uh, MVT for me, I'm gonna go Roy Ward Baker on this. He's arguably maybe the best or one of the best of the Hammer directors. Yeah. And, uh, but he really nails this one. Uh, he really does. And, uh, again, I think this is just underseen, uh, even though the folks that have seen it tend to love it. So Mm -hmm. I would recommend people check it out. I'll give this one a straight eight out of 10. Loved it on a rewatch. Still think it's one of the best Hammer films. Uh, easily in the top 10 Hammer films if uh, you know, you're know you into that kind of stuff or if you're thinking about jumping into Hammer films. Uh, if you want to see the best first, I mean, some, most people are completists, so they want to see everything, and I understand that, right. but I mean, you were probably that too. I mean, you're doing your crummy thing, and I'm doing my Saw thing over here. Uh, <laughs> yours is going a little bit better than mine. <laughs> I would say so, yeah. If there were 30 or 40 Saw films, uh, I would quit watching cinema altogether. Um, <laughs> but 
I think this is definitely one you should start with because I think it's very well done. So. I agree. Um, okay, so make or break. Uh, yeah, it's the first transformation scene. I mean, like I said, it's very slick. It's very effective. Um, and it just works uh, tremendously well. Um, MVT, I'm going to go with uh, uh, Bates and Beswick uh, on this one. I think they deliver a nice little one-two punch in both of their uh, in both of their roles. Uh, and they uh, they sell it 100%. Uh, and score for me, uh, as usual, I'm, we're a little bit off, but not too far. I'm 7.5 out of 10. I agree uh, that people would be very well served to uh, to dive into uh, Hammer with this one if they uh, if they want to go down that road. Um, and for those of you who haven't watched it in a while, I'd say, hey, now's a good time for a rewatch. So definitely, definitely, there you have it. And the prints that are out there are really nice. I mean, oh yeah, uh, this yeah. film has yeah, been yeah. Uh, well preserved to say the least, and it looks really nice. And again, it really is amazing how well they cast uh, Beswick and uh, uh, Bates and how similar they look. I mean, they just add yes. the beauty mark, really. They just yep. add the mole, yep. and you buy it. You really do. Yep. All right, we're going to take a short break and come back and talk about Wonderland from 2003. We'll be back right after this. could tell Just like an old time movie About a ghost from a wishing well In a castle dark Or a fortress strong With chains upon my feet You know that ghost is me And I will never be set free As long as I can't see If I could read your mind, love What a tale your thoughts could tell Just like a paperback novel The kind the drugstore sells Alright, the soft, dulcet tones of Gordon Lightfoot One of my favorite uh, guitar uh, singer-songwriters Love that guy. All right. We are... <laughs> are you there, Tom? We are back. Yeah. It's so quiet and subtle and and uh, so lavender-soaked over here at the GGTMC. We can't even speak anymore. Uh, Gordon has taken us down that path. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are just chilling now. Might be the pot. I don't know. Um, right? <laughs> Wonderland 2003. Again, I cannot believe this film is uh, that old. Uh, it's a whole generation removed now at this point, mm-hmm. uh, which is insane to me. Uh, directed by James Cox, uh, in the police investigation of a brutal crime scene, one man was at the center of it all, legendary porn star John Holmes. Now, you might wonder, again, why I picked this. Mostly uh, it's because of Al Kilmer himself. I had just watched a documentary, and I remember liking his performance as Holmes in this. <clears throat> Ooh, I got choked up there. I don't know why. Um, but uh, I remember liking that. Um, the uh, I've always been fascinated by the Wonderland uh, crime scene and the murders and all that stuff. Uh, again, some of my dark side coming out, but... I've always been fascinated by that and how all that stuff kind of transpired. 
Um, and obviously this film has some pretty great character actors in it, but I remember liking it then. How will I feel 18 years later? I don't know, but let's just see what Todd, I think Todd had seen this before. So let's see. I had seen this before. Yeah. We'll see what you thought about on a revisit. Uh-huh. uh-huh. So, um, I have never liked John Holmes. Um, in my opinion, he was an absolute sack of shit with a giant dick attached. Oh yeah. Um, I get why he was popular, sure. <laughs> uh, but I have always found him to be pretty repellent, uh, just as a human being. So when a when gross, all this... a gross human being, yes. Oh yeah. Uh, so when all this shit started going downhill, uh, toward the end of his, uh, his career in life, I can't say that I felt awful. No. Uh, which I guess is terrible to say, even if it is true. I mean, I felt bad for the people whose whose lives he ruined and or ended. Oh, I don't. Uh, and, I don't think it's a terrible thing to say. I mean, I don't wish ill upon anybody, but uh, I mean, I, well, you, you but reap I, what you sow. You get just desserts, yeah. Yeah, yeah you re- yeah, yeah. you reap what you sow in some regard too. I mean, I, I I I don't I don't think that honestly. I don't know if there's a good person in this film. Well, well there, there is one, and that's and, you know, there's the one. Movie, there's one. I, yeah okay Maybe. Uh, but i mean and the movie while not really trying to glorify or absolve holmes i think it does try to humanize him in a certain way trust him yes. uh so yeah yeah so you get you know quite quote uh you know once the legend was over uh so i mean the the people in the movie are garbage but the actors in the movie i mean like you said with the a lot of character actors in this ted levine um uh, Nelson, uh, Tim Blake Nelson, you know, so on and so forth. He's really good. Uh, you know, he, he's really good in this movie. He, it's a very small part, but he really nails the, uh, kind of leader. He's not really the leader, but he's kind of like the quiet leader. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No. And he does, he does do a really good job and, and Kilmer, you know, for that matter, you know, he always had a knack, uh, for these kind of skanky, very damaged, uh, loser yes. characters. Yeah. I mean, look at the doors. Um, yeah. Kilmer, he's great in the movie as a character, as a, a loathed character. I mean, again, I agree with you. There's nothing redemptive, in my opinion, about John Holmes. He he was broken at some point. Probably the best years of his life were probably when he was a kid, and he became this broken, liar, pathological, uh, in my opinion, psychopath in some ways. Sure. And well, sociopath at the sociopath very at the very least. Yes, maybe not psychopath because it's argumentative. It's argumentative. So the, one of the fascinating things about the Wonderland murders is was John Holmes involved? Yes. Uh, he certainly was in some regard. Yes. But uh, the thesis of the film is perhaps, perhaps, and this has been the thesis of people over the years. He may have physically been involved in some manner. Uh, because he's such a loathsome human being, it's easy to believe he might have been. It's an interesting and strange take here. Uh, it's definitely a post Boogie Nights movie, right? Well, I was just going to say, I mean, this, this movie could not be made before Boogie Nights or Quentin Tarantino, frankly, or Tony Scott or Oliver Stone for that matter. Yeah. Yeah. And for being that it tries to humanize a rather inhuman person. That everything we know about him is dreadful. He's just was not a good person. Uh, that, that that's I mean we're not speaking out of turn here. We're you just read a biography on the guy. He was a terrible human being. He was uh, awful to everybody he was with, and it was uh it was you know it's just one of those things. Obviously, he's a legend in the sense of the 
a kind of hero worship that unfortunately it doesn't matter what your character is to be worshipped as a hero. Matter of fact, I think most heroes are ill worshipped in my opinion. Uh, that's just my opinion though. I don't think there's very many heroic people on the face of the earth. I think it's all media driven. But uh, I think most people are shit behind the scenes. But that's me. <laughs> and we're getting back into our Jekyll and Hyde thing. Uh, <laughs> I have this argument all the time. I don't have this argument, but I, uh, my son, you know, he looks up to these sports guys, and I'm always like, yeah, just wait. Uh, that'll mm-hmm. that'll come back and bite you because trust me, they're not worth what you think they're worth. No, no, no. But uh, you know, I mean, I think that this movie is trying to walk a tightrope, and I don't know. Well, I can tell you watching it on the second time around, it doesn't succeed like I thought maybe it succeeded the first time around. No, it does not. Uh, and I did not particularly care for this movie the first time around. I liked it uh, a hair more this time around. Mm. Uh, but I think part of the problem really comes from uh, Cox as a director. Yes. Um, because this guy, he just he keeps changing up formats. He's using smash cuts. He's cutting to show characters' emotional or mental states. Oh boy! And consequently, it doesn't really want the movie does not want to let up for a single second. Yeah. Uh, and and let's even assume that that's simply to uh, match the the coke fueled uh, characters of the thing. Yes. Uh, but for me, I mean, it's such. Uh, it's such a distraction. It's overload. And I think that it detracts from the purpose at the yeah. end of the day. You know what this is? This is jagged edge filmmaking. That's what this is. Yeah, this is, yeah. this is throw a bunch of styles together and keep the audience offbeat. And I understand, and I agree with you completely. I think he's trying to make an entire film out of Scorsese's cocaine fueled ending to Goodfellas. Right or and, Tony Scott or, or Tony anything Scott, Tony yeah. Scott did or Oliver Stone when he was doing Natural yeah. Born Killers yeah, yeah. or and it and you it, know, all of that stuff. It's a it's a failed attempt. Uh, I think I, I absolutely think it's a failed attempt because I drifted away about halfway through the movie. Yeah, I, I think when I originally saw it, I think I enjoyed that filmmaking at the time. But going back and looking at it this time, I have to say, and and I still enjoy the film, not nearly to what i mean i didn't think it was a masterpiece the first time around i thought the only thing redemptive really about it was tim blake nelson uh i really enjoyed uh uh val kilmer's uh, portrayal of john holmes because i think he nails the, the pathological liar aspect the uh the way he uses guilt and other things to get what he well, wants and he also does a nice job with a certain uh portraying a certain sort of uh vulnerability yeah I mean, he really does do that. I mean, it it. I think the reason why John Holmes, you know, obviously we know why he was and what he was famous for and why he existed, but I think the reason that we have been fascinated with by him is not just because of this. I think it's the American dream thing, right? Uh, even though this American dream is obviously not of the Puritan sort or the sort that some folks believe in, it's still the meteoric rise of a normal schmo who has this one particular i don't even know if i want to call it a talent this one particular trait trait appendage whatever you want to call it like a freak show and he manages to turn that into this thing yes and he seems on the surface like so many of these people do sometimes. And I'm not saying there's not good people out there, guys. There is. I mean, I've never heard a bad thing about, you know, like, like Tom Hanks or 
Keanu Reeves, for Christ's sake, or any of these people, right? But, the, I mean, there's good people out there. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I am I know I'm being kind of a bit facetious and a bit shitty and being negative. I am pessimistic by nature, but this guy was not that guy, but he did have that meteoric rise, and it was the yeah. 70s, and men were identifying with this very misogynistic view of large cocks and yeah. and and the bullshit that it all portrays, and cocaine was not seen as an addictive drug, and it was a different time altogether. Doesn't excuse any of the behavior. Don't get me wrong. But I think that's the only fascination we have with John Holmes outside of the fact that he was blessed, if you want to say that word, or cursed with this abnormally large penis Mm -hmm. uh, that some people saw as a gift, again, like I said, and some people saw as not that big a deal. Well, because you got to remember that, you know, when, when that's what you base the entirety of your personality on, then really what have you got? Yeah. And I mean, I mean, that's kind of the thing though, is that, you know, you know, you were, you were kind of getting around this, um, I mean the, the meteoric rise and, and that's the idea of Hollywood, you know, the dream factory and all that sort of thing. Yes. But at the same time, it's the underside of Hollywood, uh, that is appealing to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think to a lot of people, yeah. uh, certainly to the people who, who have, uh, read things like the, the national Enquirer for years upon years. Or, or um, even the Manson murders is, or any of that kind of sure, stuff. Right? Sure. Yeah. And this is, this is an itch that for me, only James Elroy, uh, really comes close to scratch and not even, uh, Kenneth Anger's Hollywood Babylon, uh, mm-hmm. totally did it. And that was even more fictionalized than, than anything that, uh, that, uh, that Elroy, uh, wrote. Um, but you know, I mean, I, I know that you're, you're, you're pessimistic by nature. I'm nodding by nature, but, uh, <laughs> at the same, I yeah, well, I mean, you are down with OPP, but <laughs> so, I didn't know but, that. Uh, well, you know me. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, that, I mean, that's, that's kind of, that's where, where I, where I come into this and that's, you know, the same reason that, that, that I am fascinated by, uh, you know, the, all that Laurel Canyon stuff in the sixties and, uh, certainly, um, you know, the Manson stuff and, uh, uh, but like Altamont and, and all that sort of thing is, it's just this weird sort of, uh, crash and burn. Well, there was, uh, there was that hope we, that we watched this thing do, right? There was hope. There was this. There was. There well, was this the, the, hope the, the, that things was, were going to yeah, change. There was, this, there was this extreme optimism. Yes. But you knew it was. You knew it was bullshit from the start, mm-hmm. right? And it also. And it, but it had because, because it, it always had the seediness to it. It always had this mm-hmm. sort of skankest skankiness uh, to it. There you was know, always nobody wanted to say anything about it because look at these fucking people. Yeah. I mean, you look at them and you're just like, what the fuck? I, I, okay. Well, like on. anything, I think there was always that element that was going to take advantage of that. And it was well, always yeah, there because that's human nature, right? Yeah, you and that, I know this. It was always uh, there, and it did, and it and it, it got twisted, and like most things, they get twisted. Well, it got twisted because there's no such thing. Listen, ideals are great when we're talking ideally, but in reality, <laughs> ideals you know they just don't work, and they never have, and they never will. Mm. They can't. The human nature is is such a thing that you know you can only be ideal in in uh, in in philosophy. Uh, and theory, and mm-hmm. there it's wonderful to have ideals and, and all this other bullshit. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't live without ideals. Certainly, we should have certain, um, you know, uh, parameters. Let's say to uh, to what we we do and what we allow and all that sort of thing. But um, oh, we're getting a bit far afield here. So yeah, yeah. anyway, yeah, yeah. 
So, uh, getting back to the movie, uh, I, I do think that it's kind of dicey uh, to approach stories like this from the inside, which is what this movie does. Um, but I think that kind of cleverly, uh, Cox does construct the story in a nonlinear fashion using, you know, flashbacks to kind of fill us in. Yeah. Uh, but I think that also one of the, one of the things that thankfully he does is he shifts away from the scumbags, uh, to the, uh, police procedural elements enough to, to keep me engaged, you know, at least through the, the first half of the movie. Yeah. 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 Um, and so, you know, getting back to, uh, some of the uh, the actors here for just a quick second. You know, I've always liked Dylan McDermott, um, but I've also it, it's really weird this dichotomy. Uh, I've as much as I like him, I've also never bought him as either a badass or as a nice guy. <laughs> yeah. uh, so here's the thing. So I, I'm, th- I'm never sure where to put him. Yeah. You know. So here's the I really like him. Yeah, yeah. I understand. I understand you like. Him. I do not like him. I have never liked. Oh, okay. Him. Okay. Uh, well, see now because Josh Lucas is exactly that for me. Yeah. He's never well, not a turd. Uh, I've liked Josh Lucas in a couple things, but very little. And I really, really, really don't like Josh Lucas in this film. He is hell yeah. He is so far over the top here, and so miscast. Yeah, because you know he's got these good boy looks and stuff. And I know Ron Lanius in real life was kind of a California good looking kind of guy, but he just does not. He is way far gone in this movie. Uh, Yeah, and there's so many ill advised moments. I think. In this movie, I think Josh Lucas is probably only good in like rom coms, and uh, maybe I've seen him in well, something and, else. And I, I'd like to think that he's the uh, the voice of the the Home Depot commercials that we always hear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know if he actually is. He might but be. It sounds like he, he might is. be. It sounds like he is. Yes. I hope he is. I think he uh, might be. And, I'm gonna look that and up yet, here. In and a yet, Eric Bogosian is as Bogosian esque as he's ever been. Yeah. Right. <laughs> he's very I mean, Bogosian. He's, he fits into this thing like a nice, comfy pair of sweats. I mean, he is a nice, comfy, sweaty speedo. As a matter of fact, he is so Eddie Nash. Uh, and I, of course, I've never met Eddie Nash, <laughs> and I never would have wanted to meet Eddie Nash. But no. he seems like what Eddie Nash would have been like. This, Absolutely. This uh, guy that wants to live the American dream, and sees John Holmes as as the American dream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, because that's what he wants from the American dream. Young girls, drugs, money. Mm-hmm. And he probably saw John Holmes as this. And that was his, you know, his kind of brush with celebrity. Because, uh, again, regardless of what we think of Holmes, at one point in time, he was huge. He was, no, no, no pun intended, he was a huge star. He was a big deal for, uh, you know, a red-hot minute. Um, just like uh, Linda Lovelace and things like that. I mean, there was a time when porn stars were... They were seen and looked upon as the next big stars because people were going to quote unquote accept pornography, yeah, which, uh, yeah. which we knew was <laughs> never going to happen. But it felt yeah, like they made for a, a valiant moment, effort, though. Yeah, I mean, it felt like for a minute people were going to right, and yeah. you know that's what Boogie Nights is about. That's what yep. Uh, yep. you know that kind of golden quote unquote golden era of pornography is. And we might not share the same thoughts on pornography. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I don't think anybody thinks it's anybody that's ever used it for what they use it for doesn't think it's a bad thing. But I do believe that these people, you know, a lot of times are doing a job. Uh, it's the job they've been saddled with or the job they've chosen. It's not always a glorious job, but I do believe it's a job. And, uh, you know, I think they get looked down upon quite a bit, um, mm-hmm. honestly, when their job is to satisfy people and uh you know sex work be it hookers prostitution pornography 
any of that stuff will always be frowned upon in a Puritan society because that's the way Puritan societies are. They don't want to admit to any of that kind of stuff. Well, of course, but that's 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 across the board, though. I mean, yeah, how many societies? Right, how many societies don't look down upon it? Yeah, probably I mean, in the same. Uh, come on, maybe. In, in the same way. In the same way that people look down on, you know, burger flippers, <laughs> that, they that look is down true. on. That is true. On sex workers. That is you true. Can, you can make any kind of excuses that you want for what we what we do in the bedroom and what everybody you know everybody yeah, burger, does it and this that and the other fucking thing. Bur- Doesn't matter. Burger flipping nobody, is burger flipping. It is uh, it is valuable work. I mean, I do buy it, those burgers. And I'm not I'm not saying there's not value to these things. I'm just saying that you know. If you're going to do the job, then you have to be prepared for what the job brings with it, and that comes with a certain stigma. It does. You know whether or not we like that, whether or not we agree with that, is inconsequential. It is yeah. a fact of the, it is a fact of the job. If I'm a, if I'm a you know if I'm a like I said if I'm a burger flipper, then people are going to think of me in a certain way. If I'm a hooker, people yeah. are going to think of me in a certain way. It, you know I could think of myself as the most lofty the thing that I'm doing for all of society that I'm you know releasing these things that people have. Blah 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 blah. Okay, yeah, fine, whatever. But you're still a hooker. So, you know, this is the way that people look at you. This is what you got to deal with. Yeah. It's a society. It's in, the a so- same, in, the same, in the same way that, you know, if you were a doctor, people look at you a certain way. Yeah. It's a society. It's exactly. It's a societal problem. It's not a, in my opinion, a, a way things are or a way things need to be. It's well, a I think it's absolutely a way things are because, I mean, good luck changing it. You're not going to change it. Oh, it's not it. going to change. No, no, no. Right. It's not going to change. It's not right. going to change. So, ergo, ergo, it could be as much of a problem as you as you or I would or anybody would like to say that it is, but it's it's simply the fact of the matter. Yeah. That's not going to change. No, it's not. Yeah, you're you're correct. Right. I mean, right. So you so then we have to deal with it on that term, and that term is that you know if you if you're going to be a sex worker, then yes, you're going to be looked down upon by certain people. Yeah. Uh, certain other people are going to glorify you, of course. Yes. Yes. But you know, by and large, society is going to look down its nose at you. Yeah. So I mean, if you're going to do it, then be prepared for that. Yes. Then be they... prepared for it after you get out of the business. Then and you know you now want to like you know be like a a housewife or whatever and somebody says hey by the way weren't you in porn <laughs> yeah. well you know no shit yeah people <laughs> yeah. are going to have a certain opinion about you yeah like, come on let's not let's not be naive about this shit please yeah no yeah. oh, i'm not being naive i'm just well, being I'm not saying that you are i'm just saying that people in general tend to be you know the, the way that they they talk about these things is just it's kind of yeah. silly to me it's like come on yeah I, I agree with you it is but i also think that like anything it's something that you know it will always be there it will never go away Oh no, no, but, it ain't but going I anywhere. Think, as long as people have genitals, it ain't going anywhere. But I think that the way we, especially the American culture, has shut it off when it's mm-hmm. obviously, you know, it's the biggest money generator outside of video games in our mm-hmm. economy. And it has been since we came across on a boat. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's what they always say. You know, the, all the all the technological leaps that happen uh, tend to be centered around uh, yeah. basically. Well, I mean, I knew. I mean, I, I've, I've been, I'm a tech buff myself. I mean, I I I picked up DVD because pornography did. I picked up uh, instead of buying HD DVDs and buying Blu-rays more than HD DVD, even though HD DVD had more releases at the time. I was buying Blu-rays, and everybody's like, "Why are you buying Blu-rays?" I'm like, "Because pornography's going to get into Blu-ray." If pornography's getting into Blu-ray, that's the way they're going. I'm telling you right now that because that's what people buy, that is where the most money is made, and it's going to be that way until the end of time. I mean, you know, it's a four billion, five billion, six billion dollar business every year. Sure, and it's never going to go anywhere. It, it and sure, and this is my argument. Sometimes when people say, you know, pirating music kills the music industry, pirating films kills the film industry, I can tell you right now, <laughs> pornography's been pirated since the beginning of time. <laughs> And yeah, it still and it hasn't gone anywhere. It still generates a ton of profit. 
So I don't. I have a hard time believing that sometimes. So anyway, we're getting well, we're getting way off subject. Let's get back to Wonderland. We've, we've, yeah, this has been the most tangential <laughs> discussion I think we've ever had in a long time, actually. Uh, so anyway, yeah, Tan, like tangential uh, conversations with this. Is. Yes, tangential indeed. <laughs> we are so off teat. <laughs> we are definitely off teat, and my genitals are tanned. <laughs> <laughs> I use a nice cocoa butter. Um, ill. So, okay. Uh, speaking of things that I lost interest in, this movie. Um, about halfway uh, through it, uh, <laughs> like this conversation. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I, I just, I really did find myself losing interest. There's, there, there are no. I don't think there are any great mysteries here. There's no, um, there's no deep character revelations. There's no meaningful insight. I think into these people or, or these events or what drives them personally or societally. I don't think. Yeah. Uh, so I think that the entire second half is pretty much, uh, as far as I'm concerned, just a long march uh, to the finish line for me. Um, the most interesting thing along the way, then, uh, from that point, like the halfway point on, is uh, is basically the Lisa Kudrow character yes. uh, as Sharon Holmes. She, yes. She's a woman uh, who knows uh, John Holmes inside and out mm-hmm. and sees through all of the bullshit. Yeah. But as the only sane character uh, in the entire bunch, she's also portrayed uh, as uh, as kind of shrewish. Yeah, a little uh, bit. Which I found kind of interesting. Uh, I, I really think her character, you know, in a way. Yeah, her character is very interesting, and and in real life, that's the way evidently Sharon Holmes was. I mean, she did care for the Dawn character, the Dawn person that would uh, that John Holmes left her for. Mm-hmm. Uh, she did care for that character and or that person, and I found that you know really touching uh, because she didn't have to do that. You know, she didn't have to, but she has this this quality to her. Essentially, this quality of, you know, John Holmes didn't deserve her in his life. Uh, he really didn't. He's one of those kind of guys that, you know, came into this person's life and probably lied his way into that life and then became this porn star and basically shit all over her. And he never deserved that. Or she never deserved that, I should say. And he never deserved to have somebody that good in his mm-hmm. life because he, mm-hmm. of the way he treated people. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree on that one. Uh, so I, I think that maybe... Cox should have started with Holmes's confession to mm. begin with, mm-hmm. uh, to give us an unreliable narrative to unravel rather than totally, you know, uh, not buying it based on what came before, because it feels, uh, superfluous, uh, like only present really kind of to recenter the movie on, on Holmes and Val Kilmer. And I guess it's supposed to show that, you know, uh, truth lies somewhere between everybody's stories, but, uh, the, the Dylan McDermott character, the David Lind, uh, character is credible, uh, from the beginning because we know for him that this whole thing is personal. Mm-hmm. And, and I agree with the uh, Ted Levine, uh, when he, when he talks about that. So the film feels a lot like, uh, the usual suspects light, yeah. uh, in a way. And that's L I T E light. Um, just without a, uh, a big reveal. I mean, we kind of get like, you know, air quotes, the truth, uh, at the very end of the movie. But I think that it feels either like giving this guy way more credit than he deserves, uh, or just, you know, more self-deluded bullshit, uh, the Holmes character. Um, you know, I think that, I think when you end a movie with that much post-credit, that much narrative and, and well, then you haven't done your job. You clearly have not, and you clearly don't know what that character really is, right? Uh, because you can't glorify it. And I, you know, I, I got to go back and say, you know, I don't. I I think the unreliable narrator. I think the problem with this movie is you have two unreliable narr- narrators. 
You have the David Lynn one. Well, who, you have you have three. You have David Lynn, you have John Holmes, and you have James Cox. Yeah, well, that's true. That's true when you think about it that way. And then you have the 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 ever prescient unreliable narrator of the the public who is mm, sure has sure. judged this story obviously from all the different unreliable narratives they've heard. And at this point, this thing's gotten so muddled, right? And so many people are dead. There's a great podcast out there, by the way. Michael Conley did about a seven part podcast on this thing. Mm-hmm. and it's such a muddled mess. Like, they messed this up from the get-go, and it's such a mess that you just you wonder how any research was done outside of the fact that Holmes had such a big mouth. Right. Like, if he right. didn't have such a big mouth and he wasn't such a buffoon, I don't know if anybody ever would have figured it out because nobody was looking at these people. These people were... Uh, I'll tell you what Cox nails in this film because i won't have a lot to say during this review because we've talked about it quite a bit already on my side but i'll tell you what he nails he nails the drugged in nastiness of a bunch of junkies yeah yeah i can just think that that house smells like sweat and ass oh yeah and just is just a cesspool of people constantly coming in i bet the carpet smells like piss yep I bet everything about that house was disgusting. Yeah, there's probably fucking little glass shards in it. That it uh, oh, yeah. It was because the only thing these people cared about was getting high. Yes. And when junkies get together and all they care about, all they care about is getting high. And look, I'm you know, whatever you do with your personal life, that that doesn't bother me. Unless you, if you're not if you're hurting yourself, that's your business. If you're hurting somebody else, then I, I got a problem. Then I might have a problem with it. Yes, definitely. But if, if that person's involved with you and they're doing the same thing, then I you know I ain't got nothing to say to you. It is what it is. Um, but a bunch of junkies in a house, I mean, they they nail to me that disparity that the he well that's the only thing to me Cox nails. Uh, the, the only other thing that's interesting about this movie, really watching it this time, is Val Kilmer himself. How he somehow manages, and how he's managed through his whole career. To even take the most lowly of characters <laughs> and somehow make them interesting mm-hmm. is really uh you know a trait a lot of actors can't do and uh i have to give him credit for that i don't champion the holmes character or the holmes person at all no but the performance is good the, the performance performances in the movie are by and large good they are ted levine's great mc ganey's great Oh yeah, uh, he yeah, comes yeah. along and he's got this great relationship with john holmes and it's a great yep. it's probably one of the best scenes in the movie when they're just sitting there talking it's really good. Uh, there's almost like this father figure relationship. Kate Bosworth in kind of a thankless role here, but I think she does a really good job. Uh, like you said, Lisa Kudrow. It's a bit shrewish, but to be honest with you, she's really good in the part. Mm-hmm. Um, Josh Lucas is the is the standout as far as bad, in my opinion. <laughs> Dylan uh, McDermott is fine in this movie. I'm not a fan of his generally, but he's fine in this movie. But here's the other problem with this movie, and I'm sorry, I'm kind of stealing your, the rest of your review here. but That's all right. Uh, Everybody in this movie feels like they're playing dress up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and that that goes back to this movie couldn't be made it before Boogie Nights. Yeah, because that's kind of that gives them the uh, the the license, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Dylan McDermott looks like a pirate. Yes, or yeah, something. Yeah, I have he, no idea. Yeah, yeah. I mean, can he not grow a goatee? That is that is a terrible go fake goatee. At least it's I think terrible. it's fake. His sideburns looks- even look fake, and I would assume Dylan McDermott can grow sideburns. I don't know. I would hope. He I seems, don't know. Maybe he's one of those patchy fucking things. Yeah, he might be. He seems like the kind uh, of guy, though, with his dark hair and everything else. He seems like the kind of guy that. Yeah, he looks a little swarthy. Yeah, that would grow a beard like in you know twenty minutes. 
Yeah, right? But what the fuck? I don't know. He really looks like he's playing dress up, but he's not the only one. Uh, Tim Blake no, Nelson, no. even as much as I like him, he feels like he's playing dress up. Uh, Josh Lucas is definitely playing dress up. Even Val Kilmer, to some <laughs> degree, is playing dress up here. But I think he carries this movie on his back. I think this is his performance is better than this movie deserves. If that makes sense. It does. It does. And I, uh, I do tend to agree with you on that. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, uh, pretty much uh, end of the day and my notes for that matter uh, is that for, uh, for me, um, I mean, this is basically, it's a short movie, uh, recycled, um, to try and give it the, the semblance of depth that I don't think is there. Uh, and I just don't think that Cox's approach, uh, fits the story. And it really feels like, uh, he is basically pounding a square peg into a round hole the whole time. Um, and it's not helped any, I think by being entirely too long, this movie should not have been longer than 82 minutes. Um, it's also, I think in questionable taste, uh, to, uh, shock cut to real crime scene photos, uh, during the, uh, the seizure inducing attack scene, uh, that, uh, that we get in the movie. Yeah. Uh, so that in and of itself, I also kind of have to be like, you know, a little sketchy. Yeah. Um, I don't know how I feel about that. Honestly, I don't know. Part- I, I get it. Yeah. I get it in the same way that you have actual yeah. images of John Holmes over the credits in the beginning. Again, it's that Scorsese thing. I think sometimes where I think, I don't know if Scorsese ever did. Maybe De Palma did. I don't know if it. Some, I don't. I don't think somebody did with a mob did. movie. Somebody did with a mob movie, and I can't remember well, who it was. Well, the papers, they did it. Yeah, they did it with the Velocity papers. You're right. So, I mean, I understand the aesthetic he was going for. I get it, uh, but I. I mean, but I think that, that whole is, scene is ethically that is pretty questionable. It's mil- it's 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 opaque. No doubt. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, and that's pretty much my notes, except for that there is, in fact, a J and B sighting. Uh, in this movie, <laughs> there is uh, during the uh, the three cops doing their little powwow. Yeah, yeah. Um, but other than that, uh, yeah, that's pretty much all my notes. I I I'm not a huge fan of this movie. I think it's okay. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's really damned. Uh, I think more than anything, both. But uh, well, I mean, Cox takes the the brunt of the of the uh, the blame for this entire thing. Yeah. Because he was the one who structured it. He was the one who wrote the screenplay. He was the one who directed it. So. Yeah. It's at the br- end of the day, it's his blame. Yeah, it's an abrasive movie, uh, and not in the way that yeah, I think he intended it to be. I think he right. Well, he it, wanted it to be edgy, and yeah, he wanted it to be yeah. sure transgressive, and I'm right. sure you know all of that sort of shit. And it just isn't that. Uh, no, it's, it's just grading in a, in a different way. It's like sandpaper. It's like sandpaper yes, instead yeah. of. Like that jagged knife you need to kind of make an, a statement or an impact statement. Yeah. Yes. It's more like just a, a grind in a way. And I don't, I, I agree with you. I don't think the movie's terrible. I, th- I think it's watchable. Uh, I don't know how many times I'd watch it again. Probably never unless somebody asked me to check it out again. Um, because I don't really think I'd be interested in going down the path again. I have seen documentaries on homes that are much better. Uh, but again, once you watch something like that, you realize that this is not a, you know, this was not a good person from the get go. I mean, he just borders on, you know, being a serial killer in some ways. Uh, he's not much different than that in a lot of ways. And, and a lot of the things he did, um, he was a truly dreadful person. And, you know, that that's going to happen in life. Uh, I just think it's always strange. It's kind of like the Elvis Presley thing. This is also another not a, not a good person. But, you know, they're, they're looked upon with such romanticism, right? 
And romanticism is a tricky thing because it's easy to go back and look upon these things like James Brown or uh, Elvis Presley or John Lennon sometimes or John Holmes or uh, Charles Bronson. You know, I I admired Charles Bronson my whole life and only to come to find out that he basically just smacked women around all the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you you admire these people and then you realize and and, and again, this is what I like. You find out that they're human beings. That they have faults. Um, now I might not agree with those faults, and doesn't like I said before. I, you know, I, I wouldn't have a drink with Mel Gibson. I'll watch his movies, but I won't have a drink with him um, because I'm not interested in him. He doesn't seem like an interesting person to me. He seems like a bit of a shithead. A douchebag would probably be the better word. Um, but I do think you know some of the greatest artists of all time were douchebags, uh, painters, uh, writers all this kind of stuff. So you, it's it's always a tricky spot uh, to kind of put yourself in. Now, I do not think John Holmes is uh, Renoir or uh, <laughs> or even Charles Bronson uh, for that uh, matter. Yeah, no. But I do think culturally he has some significance to our culture um, in a very strange way. Well, in the same way that pet rocks do, yeah. Yes, or Chia Pets sure. or any of those kinds of things. He is a pop culture artifact. And uh, so he has some significance to our life. Um, he is like a Xerox machine, synonymous with one thing. Uh, you know, people say John Holmes, even people who have never seen pornography know who John Holmes is, right? Mm-hmm. So it's one of those things. Uh, it's one of those type of fame moments. Even though there has been, for the record, there has been gentlemen that have come along that are much larger than him since then. And everything else, they've never captured that moment, kind of like Linda Lovelace did. They never captured that moment. You know what I'm saying? Like you know, Harry Reams was working just as much as John Holmes, but only porn enthusiasts know who Harry Reams is. <laughs> Indeed. Or even Ron Jeremy. To a, you know, even though he's been in the news lately, but even Ron Jeremy, you know, folks know who that is, but he's not. I don't think synonymous with the creation of a whole form of entertainment right right right. Uh, like elvis presley and rock and roll uh beatles and the british invasion uh you know john holmes and pornography blah 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 Mm -hmm. so he does stand out in that way uh again i'll say i think the movie's miscast in a lot of ways i think tim blake nelson's good i think uh, um i don't i don't really care for dylan mcdermott uh i don't really care for josh lucas in this uh, the female characters are non-existent, even though there's some good actresses in here. Yeah. Uh, Christina Applegate's in there a little oh, bit. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which I think I she, yeah, she's in there. Uh, she plays Susan Lonius, actually. Yeah. Uh, Kate Bosworth and uh, and really uh, Lisa Kudrow really get the most meat here, and they're good, but uh, I believe there's other... Wasn't Janine Garofalo in there? I felt like I saw Janine yes, Garofalo. Yes, she is. Yeah, she is. But she is like she's, non-existent. Uh, she's, she's Nelson's wife, I think. Or yeah, something. yeah, yeah. She's like non-existent in the movie. And then, mm-hmm. you know, Frankie G's in here. Who I have to mention this because Frankie G, the actor who plays the uh, b- uh, partner to uh, Ted Levine, and Ted Levine's great in this movie. We should say that he's he's yeah. a great. It's a great character actor performance from him. He. Uh, he, uh, Frankie G, I have to mention him because he was in Saw 2. So I have to mention that, right? I have to mention that. <laughs> but Scoot McNary's in here uh, a little bit. You can see him a little bit. Natasha Gregson Wagner's in here. 
Janine Garofalo, we said, was in here. Faison Love's in here playing kind of the heavy. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, the African-American character. Paris Hilton's in here in a brief moment yes. of uh, stunt that casting. That, in fact, happens. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it happens, and I, I remember the first time thinking, is that Paris Hilton? And then I remember watching this time going, hey, that's Paris Hilton. <laughs> yep. And uh, I think Bogosian does it. Go, go, go. Go away. Go away. We must talk. Oh, John Holmes, Johnny Wad. Anyway. Um <laughs> good Bogosian impression there. yeah the movie is just a it's a it's an okay movie probably only as good as the legend of the wonderland murders is deep mm-hmm. uh outside of that it's a very vacuous film in a lot of ways it's very empty and uh I'm I'm always amazed. Again, one of the reasons why I pick movies to revisit sometimes is because I'll see something and I'll be like, I really like that. And I'll even look at my top 30 list sometimes and things like that. And I'll go back and be like, why did I like this movie so much? Because you change, right? You know, you change, I change, we all change. Um, so this is one that I mean, I didn't champion it as like one of the best films of the year, but I do remember liking it and thinking, wow, that was pretty cool. And I did end up buying the DVD, mostly because it had a uh, a John Holmes documentary on the DVD as well. I still have it um, because you couldn't get that uh, John Johnny Wad documentary. You couldn't get it any other way. You had to bootleg it. So they actually put it out as part of the dual set with this movie. So I bought it more for the Johnny Holmes documentary than I bought it for the movie. <laughs> but, you know, I've, I've been known to do that. I mean, I, I own Ridley Scott movies I don't even like, but I know there's four-hour documentaries on the making of them, you know. <laughs> Because you can say a lot about Ridley Scott, and sometimes his later output can be a little, you know, here or there. But you can't say nothing about those documentaries that are on some of his filmmaking. Because <laughs> I love to watch that guy work. I love the way he works. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Just watching him chew on stogies gets me excited. Yep. It makes me jealous, too, by the way. That guy's, <laughs> that guy's 80-something years old, and he has two films coming out this year. How about it? How does that – How how is this guy is, – is he just going to work until he dies? Yes, he is. I think he is. Absolutely, 100%, I think he is. I think he is, too. I think you're right. I think he has to either have a crippling incident or he's going to have to be dead. Yes. Or he's not going to stop making movies. One of them looks interesting. One of them, ooh, I don't know. That uh, that Viking one or whatever with the, the Matt Damon and Ben Affleck thing, that looks troublesome. <laughs> that could be something. Let me tell you that I am morbidly curious about that one. Let me tell you. <laughs> I think the House of Gucci one, though, actually looks like it could be pretty good. Anyway, um, yeah, this is a – I agree with you. I think the one – if you would have been watching this with me, if we'd have been sitting there, I think the conversation we would have had is, what is James Cox doing here? Why yeah. He is not following his own rules. He's setting up one film. He's changing it midway. He's changing it again. He's changing, 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 changing. And unlike David Bowie, these changes aren't working for me. Uh, right. This is just, it's a mess of filmmaking uh, with, again, the only thing fascinating about it is the seedy underbelly of Hollywood. Yes, yes. And that gives it, don't get me wrong, that gives it a lot of weight, but not enough for me to love this film. I liked it, did not love it. I'll just say that. I think it's a mess, but... It is absolutely a mess. All right, let's get into Make or Breaks, MVTs. Uh, okay, so Make or Break for me is the, um, uh, for want of a better term, the rationalization scene. Um, I think it comes closest to giving the film some substance, but even here I think that it just kind of shows how empty 
these people are and how pointless these events were. Uh, and you know, I, maybe that's the point. I don't know. Um, not a hundred percent anyway, but yeah. regardless, MVT, I'm going with the cast. Uh, I think they all put their best foot forward and I think they're, uh, really just constantly being undermined, uh, by Cox's, uh, schizophrenic stylings. Yeah. Uh, basically. So. And I think Josh Lucas would have been better if they gave you less of him. Yes. I think 100%. there's too many scenes where he's walking around on couches. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and, and playing gunslinger and all yeah, this shit. Yeah, and doing rails and all these things. I think there's just too yeah. much of that. Uh, and score for me, uh, fuck, I'm gonna go <laughs> six. Yeah, that's good. I'm gonna go straight six. Yeah, yeah. That that, that I'm, I'm okay with that. Yeah, yeah. That sounds about where I thought you'd fall into it after listening to you talk about it. So. Yeah, I mean, it's better than, you know, the 5 to 5.5 range, but not much better than that. No. It's just no. It, maybe a little bit more no, and I was I was pubic hair away from uh, from going there. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, I make a break. I'm going to go with the scene where Val Kilmer's in the car by himself, and he's just tricked out his girlfriend. I think it's a great moment for Val Kilmer of the pathos of John Holmes. Here's this character that is willing to do anything to get high. Even sell his own wife or his girlfriend or the ones he loves are not even as important as the white powder. And I think that that is all over Kilmer's face, both in sadness and ugliness, everything about it. I think it's a really good performance and a really good moment. Um, and really sold me on the performance of the character altogether. Again, not championing John Holmes. I don't think that's a good person, but I think Kilmer playing Holmes. And again, I've, I've we've talked about this in the past. You know, Kilmer's a legendary jerk in, yes. in Hollywood history. Uh, just go go do some digging. Uh, don't just watch that Val documentary and think he's what he's portraying himself to be. Because <laughs> he does kind of skip over quite a bit in there. The only, the only real Kilmer... Uh, legendary stories you see is his argument with uh, uh, John Frankenheimer on Moreau. You do see that. Um, but uh, that's the only thing he allows you to see. He doesn't allow you to see all the other stories I've heard. Uh, anyway, my MVT is Kilmer. I think he's the best thing about this movie, although I do think there is a lot of good character acting in this film. I do think Kilmer is the best thing. I just feel like everybody in this movie had seen Boogie Nights, and uh, they came to this movie thinking they were making Boogie Nights, and they were not making Boogie Nights. <laughs> And my score is just a little bit higher than yours, but not the half point. I'll give it a 6.25. Whoa. Yeah, just a just a hair higher. Uh, literally a John Holmes hair higher. Right. A curly strand. Uh, a Dylan McDermott sideburn higher. <laughs> <laughs> One half a teat higher. And we should say Carrie Fisher is kind of fun in the beginning of this film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's always a shock to me. To see Carrie Fisher in the it's beginning. It's just an odd throwaway <laughs> sort of. It is, I mean, ain't you, it? You talk about Paris Hilton being stunt casting. <laughs> yeah. But Carrie Fisher, for, for how much significance she has in this movie, is just like, huh? It's kind of weird. It is. It is. It's kind of a weird moment. Oh, yeah. All right. So that's the big show this week. Uh, we know what we're doing next week. We might have a surprise for you guys next week. I'm not going to announce that because I don't want to uh, jinx anything, but we might have a surprise well, for you next week. We are getting married, yes. Yes, we are. Finally, we're going to tie the knot. We've had it. Tie the, that knot. We have been uh, flirting with each other for years. It's over. Tying that prolapse yeah. into a knot Ooh. to keep it 
man. Steady. I would hate to go to the hospital to have that removed. Oh. This the tying of it together would be one oh, thing. I can only imagine the forceps. The, but oh. once, but <laughs> once, but once you got used to the tying of the knot, I guess you'd be okay. But that's all nerve endings. I'd imagine yeah, the right? untying would be dreadful. My God. <laughs> Let's not even talk you about gotta it. You got to get a good grip on that thing to get the yeah. to get the one end out of the awe. Oh, At mm. least I know I would feel your heartbeat. Um, yes. Just like little Fra- little <laughs> Tommy DeFranco and the DeFranco so, family. So next week we are uh, covering. So Sonny Sheba died. Yes, uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, of COVID related uh, complications, uh, as we've lost so many to that. And uh, Sonny Sheba is a special kind of martial arts star. In that he's kind of the grindhouse version of all the kind of martial arts stars you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there we've talked about him a little bit when we did uh, Big Boss, and uh, it, it the timing is sadly what it is. But we're going to do two of his most popular films, uh, Street Fighter and Return of Street Fighter. Uh, we we could pick so many Sonny Sheba films. Uh, he's got 180 films or something, and we've done some Sheba before in the past. But I've always wanted to kind of talk about Street Fighter because Street Fighter was kind of a cultural thing. I remember, I want to tell the story now, but I remember when I saw True Romance, I, I, you know, I knew Quentin Tarantino wrote it and I knew who he was by that point. But I remember that's when I identified with Quentin Tarantino because once he started talking about his character, started talking about his love of Sonny Sheba. I was like, okay, so this is a guy who watches the same kind of movies I watch. Mm-hmm. Because I didn't know anybody knew who Sonny Sheba was. I mean, my mom loves Sonny Sheba. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't know anybody who knew who he was. And then that movie came out, and I was just kind of like dumbfounded. Uh, and it really kind of made me fall in love with uh, Tarantino's world a little bit more, too. Um, but I think it's finally time to address those two mil- films. Uh, one more than the other, but we'll discuss that when we talk about it next week. Hopefully, uh, we might have a surprise for you guys next week. We'll see. Uh, we'll see how that develops, and uh, we'll go from there. But, yeah, next week is going to be Street Fighter and Return of Street Fighter. Is it Return of the Street Fighter or Return of Street Fighter? It's Return of the Street Fighter. Yeah. Because the first one is the Street Fighter. <laughs> yeah, it's always the Street Fighter. Yes, because yeah. Street Fighter is the, the Van Damme. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, there's lots of Street Fighter. If you go out there and look, there's lots of... You just do a Google search for Street Fighter. You'll come up with all kinds of stuff. Mostly video game. Yes. Yeah. But uh, there are these Sonny Sheba films. And I know that most people who listen to this have probably seen these movies. Or if not, you have always meant to. Well, now's your opportunity. You can play along with now's us. Now's your excuse. All right. Yes, as if you need an excuse to listen to us talk about movies. Right? Please tell me you don't. Not at this point. All right. That is everything. We love you guys. Check me out over at the Not A Bomb Watches Cowboy Bebop podcast. I'm over there as well. comes out every Saturday. You can uh, hear me talk about that, which is a totally different type of thing than I talk about here. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think you'd enjoy that. Um, Yeah, and I'll say adios. Adios. Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com and you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema.com at gmail.com. Oh,